you closed your Bible, would you open it once again to 2 Kings in chapter 4 and verses 8 through 37. And the title of the sermon is The Inscrutability of God's Ways. Now, during the break, I already, I think, told just about everybody what my introduction was, and it's one I've used before. And it has to do with a seminary professor that I had. As seminary students are wont to do, to argue and to debate, to use the medieval illustration to see if they can discover how many angels can dance on the head of a pin or the equivalent. And as the students would interact and he would sit back and say absolutely nothing for a while and letting us prove to ourselves that we really didn't know much at all, he would say, gentlemen, don't try to unscrew the inscrutable. In other words, don't try to penetrate the impenetrable. There are certain levels of mystery in our faith. God has revealed himself to us and he's revealed what he wants us to know and that takes some work and takes some digging but there are certain things that we are not intended to know. And one of the questions that is the hardest to answer and it's the hardest to answer if you have children as well, and, and that has to do with the question, why? God, why are you doing this? Why did you do that? And in the case of this woman, there is the tendency on her part to ask the question, why, God, did you do this? Or Elisha, why did this happen or you permitted it to happen? Did I not say to you, do not deceive me? I'd rather go without than to have something and have it taken away. Now, there are two passages that are, or two incidents that are brought together in this chapter, at least two at the, at the outset of the chapter. And both of them have to do with women. Elisha deals with and helps a widow in debt, the first seven verses. And secondly, now he deals with a woman without children, which would have deep and dark significance for someone living in the ancient world. It was the social safety network, especially if one had sons. She was childless, and the other woman, the widow, was penniless. And God intervenes through the prophet. Joseph Hall said, God hath relieved a poor woman, and now is relieved by a rich woman. God is no respecter of persons, 
Uh, And to put it rather badly, I suppose, God is interested in women as much as he is in men and children for that matter as well. There is that old foolish saw which says that the Bible is misogynistic. The Bible is anti-women. And especially the Old Testament, or sometimes it's changed that that's true of the Old Testament, which is why we don't like to study the Old Testament or deal with the Old Testament at all. And we'd rather deal with the words of Jesus who loved women and children and men. Well, that claim or those claims of misogyny, chauvinism, and patriarchy are just not true. And in fact, we have the prominence here of two women, and that's not unusual for kings, for Elijah and Elisha. 1 Kings chapter 17 and verse 8, 2 Kings chapter 4 and verse 1, chapter 4 and verse 8, and chapter, uh, chapter 8, or chapter 5, excuse me, and verse 2. And so we'll look at this woman, having looked at the first one, and notice the seriousness with which the matter is approached. And learn, among other things, that safety from the common hazards of life are not promised to us. Deliverance, perhaps, but not safety. And so here is a sobering text, and yet one that is full of great encouragement. We're looking at the inscrutability of God's ways. We can't fully answer the question why, but we can begin to look at the question from a variety of perspectives or a number of different points, three to be exact. First of all, in verses 8 through 16, notice the simplicity of God's ways. The simplicity of God's ways. We're introduced to a woman who apparently was a woman of some standing. Um, Some have suggested that this uh, phrase uh, in chapter 4 has to do Uh, with age rather than with standing. Um, But I think that probably it probably has to do with her standing. She was a great woman. Wealth, standing in the community, someone of some significance. So her wealth and her standing did not give her everything that she wanted. She comes from this place, Shunim, which is about 15 miles south of the southern tip of the Sea of Galilee, giving you some perspective as to where she was from. And from time to time, this prophet, Elisha, we know him to be Elisha, passed by, and she would invite him in for a meal. Not uncommon, uh, Inns were notoriously uh, 
filthy and uh, dangerous places. And she recognized or seemed to recognize that he was a man of God, uh, a holy man, uh, to put it that way, uh, someone who was marked by spirituality and should be cared for if she had the resources, which apparently she did um, because of her standing and her wealth. So he comes in to eat once and then passes by again and she invites him in. And this becomes a pattern. It becomes something of a regular practice. And so she says to her husband, given who this man is, what if we build him an apartment? Now, again, houses in the day were different than our houses. In fact, the houses in Cuba are closer to those that would have been common in the day. And so in Cuba, you have a house made out of concrete block or, and cement, and it has a, a flat roof, and you're able to build a, a second story. It has the strength to do that. In fact, the zoning commissions, if you could call them that, pretty much throughout the island allow for three stories. And that's the kind of thing we have going on here. Now, I can't say that this was built out of uh, out of concrete block and reinforced and all that, but you get the idea. It was a, it was a cement or it was a stone building, had a flat roof, and you could add a story to it. And that is exactly what she convinces her husband to do. And she provides not only board, but also room. She provides hospitality to um, the prophet with a place to stay, a bed, a table, a stool, uh, and a candle. All, perhaps, I was going to say, all they needed and more, perhaps far more than he was accustomed to having. And so he would pass by on occasion, regularly perhaps, and he would stay there. Jesus in Matthew chapter 10 and uh, verses 41 and 42 uh, says something along the lines that, uh, uh, bless, uh, you know, blessed are those who uh, receive me, for in receiving me they receive uh, you. Or blessed are those who receive a prophet. Um, and Paul picks up the, the theme, if not the precise words in Romans chapter 12, when he speaks of one of the elements of, of believing or Christian character is hospitality. And so here is a woman who seems to know what that means and seems to know its importance and seems to know who it is that she is entertaining. Now Elijah wants to do, or Elisha wants to do something for her and he says, um, what, what is it that I can do for you? Can I um, uh, interact with some political official? Do you, do you need my, my influence? Uh, uh, I, I, I can do that. It's kind of interesting given uh, the history and the recent history that we've studied with uh, uh, Jehoram and Jehoshaphat and, and all of that, but but in some way he had some kind of, of influ influence and connection. So, so I'm willing to use my, 
connections to, uh, to help you. What can I do? And here again is where we, we see something of her spirituality. Her spirituality is seen in the fact that she recognizes something about Elisha and then moves her husband, or at least suggests to her husband, that they provide a place for him. And what we discover now is her contentment. Even though subsequently the servant to the prophet discovers that she's childless, she doesn't mention it. She says this, I dwell among my own people. Now that probably makes no sense to us or little sense, or we wonder what it means, but I think what it actually means is, no, I don't need your help because I'm satisfied with my lot in life. I dwell among my own people. These are my people. These, these are my relatives. These are my friends. This is the town from which I come, and I have everything that I need. And she was a man or a woman of some substance, and so in that thing, uh, in, in that sense, she was. So she's thoughtful of Elisha. She's thoughtful in a sense of her husband as she makes a request of him, but she's thoughtless with regard to herself. There's nothing here of this woman putting herself forward at all. And so the prophet in discovering that she's childless says, next time I come around, you will have a son. And again, her response is, don't get my hopes up. <laughs> don't deceive me. If this isn't going to happen, I'd rather go without than to have my hopes raised and then to have them dashed. Now, I suspect that as we're talking about this promise from the prophet that a childless woman would now become pregnant and have a child. It is possible that she was older as well, perhaps even beyond the age of childbearing, but, but it ought to ring a bell, that it ought to ring several bells that this is not the first time, nor it will be the last time that a woman is told, who is childless, is told that she will bear a child. That there are these multiple incidents in the scriptures in which divine intervention resulted in conception and childbirth. Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca. Rebecca was married for 20 years before she had before Jacob and Esau were born. Judges 13, Samson's mother. Elkanah and Hannah with the birth of Samuel. And then even coming to the New Testament, Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, is told that she would bear a son. Now there's something to observe here. 
most of these incidents, in fact, almost all of them, except this one, had to do with the continuity of the covenant or the raising up of a significant leader in Israel, you know, Abraham and Sarah and so forth. But that's not the case here. There's no suggestion at all that this individual resulted in or, or, or uh, arrived at some uh, position of significance and importance. Dale Ralph Davis raises the question, so what's the point? What's the point of the text? And then he says that sometimes the Lord gives such a gift not because he will fill some grand historical redemptive function, but simply because he wants to make a woman happy with a child. There is the stamp of ordinariness, not that getting pregnant this way is ordinary, but the stamp of ordinariness upon the text. And he goes on to say, sometimes it is far simpler than we can imagine. God is merely being gracious to a woman. And the great thing about this text, and in some ways this is the most important point, the first point should be the last point, but it comes first in the context, and that is, he's that kind of God. He is that kind of God who is gracious, merciful, and compassionate, even to a woman without a child and without any notation without any prophecy, without any anticipation that this man would become ultimately a leader in Israel. Simply, simply, simply kindness. Davis goes on to say, only the gospel according to the serpent, serpent makes God out to be stingy. and manipulative. So we discover, first of all, the simplicity of God's ways. God is just doing a kindness toward this woman. Now secondly, notice the mystery of God's ways. And here we come closer to the inscrutable nature of what it is that God does. So the boy is born and he matures, but it would appear as if he's still from the context, rather young, um, because his mother is able to pick him up and so on and so forth at the end. But he's growing up, he's maturing, he's also not working, because he goes out in the field to see his father, which would not have been the case if he were older and would working, be working on the farm. And he develops a headache. And of course, we can speculate. A number have and thought that it might have been something like sunstroke and uh, went back home, was sent back home, 
and uh, died on his mother's lap. Even the godly suffer. Uh, and even the godly die. In the previous incident, the widow was married to one of the sons of the prophets, and it was a godly home. And here this home is affected by the affliction of the death of a son. And it appears to us to be highly inconsistent. And if not inconsistent, why? And what is the answer? And notice that there is no answer. And it's not that God is no longer sovereign. I mean, he's certainly sovereign enough to to restore life to this young man, to this boy. But there's no answer. And, And even Elisha, the prophet, says, beats me, or the equivalent of that. I have absolutely no idea. The Lord hasn't revealed it to me. And the Lord doesn't always and seldom reveal to us the precise reason why he does what he does, except that somehow it's for good and his glory. But apart from that, there's, there's no answer. And, and I think that there's, a, there's something to be said here for, for counseling. People will come and will ask for help, and I'm happy to give it, and I'm happy to give counsel as much as I know, which isn't very much. But I've told you this before. There are times when somebody will ask a question, and if I don't verbalize it this way, I'll say to myself, I haven't a clue. (laughs) I have not a clue as to what to say. The Lord hasn't revealed it to me. All I have is the Bible. All I have are the scriptures, which is more than enough, or it ought to be, But sadly, all too often, people don't find it enough. Life is insecure. Let's not miss the the agony and the, the intensity of her perplexity in all of this. She doesn't know. The prophet doesn't know. Nobody seems to know. But what she does is worth viewing and emulating. She has turned to the only one who ultimately can help her, which is God, of course, but God through the prophet. Even the well-meaning servant cannot help her, tries to stop her. And so she turns to the man of God and flees past the servant and lays hold of Elisha himself and says, I will not leave you. He's the only one. He's the man of God six times in the, in the context. Where can she turn? Even if there's no answer, where can she turn except to the very God who has perplexed her. Roger Ellsworth says, this woman gives us insight into the true nature of faith. It is not mere positive thinking. 
It is not a matter of someone selecting something that he wants to be true and persuading himself that it will be true. Faith is believing what God himself has revealed. It is resting on his word. The fact that God had specifically given this child as a comfort to the woman and her husband indicated that he did not intend that the child's death should be final. God's miraculous provision of the child was in and of itself a promise that the child was to live. To live. And Davis, I think, is even more right on when he says, what can you do when God's mercy has turned to malice? Take the bitter distress and in it keep clutching at the God you don't understand. We have a word for that, faith. And then he says, which tells us, by the way, that faith is not serenity. In other words, faith doesn't always bring serenity, tranquility. It's not the same thing. The mystery of God's ways, the simplicity of God's ways, he does something kind and compassionate and gracious for this lonely, in the sense she didn't have any children, lonely woman. The mystery of God's ways, why? We don't know. Except in that general sense that whatever God does, he does to advance his glory and in some way to produce good. Now thirdly, And finally, the testimony to God's ways. Now God sends, or rather, the prophet sends his servant back with his staff. And he says, put this on the the forehead or put it on the head of, of the young man. He does that only to come back and report it did no good. Elisha's staff, formalistically made use of, um, produced absolutely nothing. And he has to report that it did nothing. And interestingly enough, the prophet asks her, or she's asked, how is it with you, with your husband, and with your child, it is well. But it wasn't well, but that's her response. Now, she's not being deceptive or lying. I think once again, you come back to the principle that we mentioned at the very beginning. She, she knows what it is to be content, even as she's needing and searching for an answer. Those are not mutually contradictory. contradictory. You can be content and rest in the providence of God and at the same time ask questions and wonder why. Is it well? Yes, it's well, but it wasn't well. 
And so you have the imposition of what we might call formal religion, the, the staff of the prophet, the rod all by itself, but it did no good. And so she takes her boy and she places, places it on Elisha's bed. Now, I suppose we could be snarky and say something along the lines, well, Elisha, this is your fault, so now he's here on your bed. But I don't think that's what's going on. And I don't think we want to go down that road at all. Although it would seem that she is saying that Elisha has something to do with all of this, and so she puts him in the place, the only place she knows where to place him. And he does something similar to what Elijah did in 1 King chapter 17 with the widow of Zarephath. And he lies upon the young man, hand to hand, head to head, eyes to eyes, and so forth. And we ought not to conclude that this is some kind of magic uh, that Elisha believes in, but rather it's symbolic. In, in a sense, it symbolizes his giving his life for the life of the child or the young man. And so it's symbolic of his care and his affection and his willingness to even give his life, which of course he doesn't end up having to do. But it's as if he says, let the lifeless be as my life. In other words, come back to life. And what happens? The boy's warm. The boy comes back to life. He's resuscitated, and we know he's resuscitated because he sneezes seven times. It's an interesting twist on the story, isn't it? Um, it's significant, but it's significant almost because of its insignificance. <laughs> he sneezes. Spurgeon, interestingly enough, you may know that Spurgeon was often uh, quite ill and had to leave uh, his church for long periods of time and went to the south of France at a place called Mentone and there regained his strength and his health and he came back to work. And he did that for a number of years. And on one occasion, and he would write letters to his church and he would write out sermons, which I don't think he ever preached, but he would write out some notes from a particular text. And on one occasion, I think it was 1879, he, he wrote out a, a sermon on the seven sneezes of this young man. And he had four points. He said, the seven sneezes are the evidences of life, which of course is the point of the text, is it not? Dead people don't sneeze, at least as far as I know. Dead people don't sneeze. There's no life in them. And so he said there's seven or four evidences of life from the seven sneezes. It's too bad he couldn't get seven. I'd probably try to work on seven, but at any rate, he didn't. So four. He said, first of all, it was involuntary. 
You ever try to control a sneeze? It's not easy to do, is it? You know? Um, and uh, he says it's involuntary. Second, he says it's um, unpleasant. And by that he meant it's, there's nothing regal about a, a, a sneeze. It, it, it's sort of ordinary. We sneeze and then we, we move on. And of course, this child sneezed seven times. And then he says, it's monotonous. There was one sneeze, two sneeze, three, you know, all the way to seven. And he says, finally, he says, and the greatest thing is, it was the sure token of life. I think that's pretty good. And and that's the point of it, actually. And and Spurgeon, probably without any commentaries or books, just came up with that on his own. But but it's, it's, it's revealing, is it not? It's... It's, it's tremendous, it's, it's excellent. We, the simplicity of God's ways, the, the mystery of God's ways, why did he do this? And then the testimony to God's ways, seven sneezes. The boy is raised up, there's resuscitation, and it, of course, points us to ultimately to resurrection as well. Well, as we think of bringing all of this to some kind of a conclusion, in this particular incident, we have both mercy and authority. We have the mercy of God to a woman who had everything she needed except for a son which she wanted. Here is mercy to a soul, compassion toward a needy person, and the authority to bring it to pass. One can have mercy but no authority, and one can have authority but use it to dominate and not to extend mercy. But here is both both mercy to a soul, the simplicity of this incident. Now, the second thing that we need to learn and can learn from this, among other things, is that death is no obstacle to the saving deliverance of God. And this isn't the only incident. And in fact, repetitive incidents are significant and important and helpful reminding us that even death itself is not a final obstruction to the saving work of God. The boy died. And he definitely died. And he was resuscitated. Even as Lazarus died three days in the tomb, and by that time would have begun to stink. And he comes out of the tomb. Death did not keep either one of them in the tomb any more than it kept the Lord Jesus Christ in the tomb where he was laid. Death is no obstacle to the saving work of God. Now, resuscitation is not resurrection. This 
boy would eventually die again, even as Lazarus, because they were still mortal. They hadn't been raised up into the presence of God. Resurrection or resuscitation is not resurrection, but both of them are rooted in the redemptive acts of God in Christ Jesus. And so, while we will die, short of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we will be raised from the dead. And we will be raised to everlasting bliss and glory. But in the meantime, we have been resuscitated, we call it regeneration, to the saving work of the Spirit of God. So here is resuscitation. We think of regeneration and the new life that we have in Jesus Christ and ultimately the promise of resurrection because Christ is the first fruits of a resurrection. Now we can look at a text like this and we can say, well, here is a woman, a woman of, of great standing. And she had faith uh, even, even upon the occasion of the death of her son. And we might look at that and say, well, well, here's a hero. And perhaps a feminist might look at it that way. There's the hero of the story, this woman. And someone else might come to it and say, well, no, she's not the she's tremendous factor in all of this and a woman of faith. But Elisha's the real hero because he's the one that God used to bring the young man back to life. But I submit to you, the woman is not the hero and Elisha's not the hero, but God is the hero. God is the one who stands and sits or stands at the very center of this story of this account, rather. This historical account of what happened on this particular occasion. And so in verse 37, it tells us that this woman went in fell at the feet of Elisha and took up her son and went out. There is a recognition there, falling at the feet of Elisha, that God is the one who brought him back from the dead. The woman is important as a woman of great faith, Elisha is important as the man of God, mentioned a number of times in the text. But the real hero and the real actor in all of this is God. And isn't that the case with our salvation? We're not the hero uh, coming to faith because of our superior wisdom and greater inherent righteousness or some such nonsense. We're not the hero. 
And even the evangelist that brought the gospel to us isn't the real hero, because all that person could do is tell us about Christ. But it's God himself who raised the boy, who gave the woman faith, and who gave the young man back to her mother. What a way to kind of end our Sabbath day together, okay? Day's not over. But to focus upon this great God who has rescued us through the merits of his own son and who's given to us faith as we saw in the first hour this morning and who has given us something to do which is to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But the one who makes all of this happen is the one who came at the Father's behest and lived and died for us guilty sinners to save us and to give us life. May God be praised. Father in heaven, we we do thank you for what we have in the Savior. We do thank you for this lesson from this Old Testament book and from this historical narrative. We have been helped and we've been encouraged. And we pray that we might leave here, this place this afternoon, with a note of triumph in our hearts and with blessing upon our lips as we think of the great salvation that we have. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.